Welcome to Moving the Rock. Whether sales is all you do or only part of what you do, the strategies and tactics of success can often feel split between two realities. You can become someone you're not to earn the recognition and praise of people you don't respect, or you can try to figure it out on your own, knowing you'll underperform your potential. We're here to offer a third way. The idea that you can't have success without compromise is just wrong. You don't have to compromise to win in the long term. You can play the game in such a way that you win in the short term and the long term. Through our hard lessons learned, we can shift your way of thinking and create a better way. I'm Chris, founder of SightShift. And I'm James, founder of Florist Group. If you're tired of the status quo, we're here to help you move the rock on your career, your business, and your life. Welcome. Chris, you said it's 28 degrees. Yeah, dude, we're in the thick of it or the thin of it. It feels like the air's thin. It's cold outside. It's it it it, it is the season here uh, where we experience all four seasons uh, in central Ohio. Uh, You know what else? Uh, It's also hiring season, which is pretty interesting, uh, given the topic that we've chosen to discuss today. Uh, You may have heard this story. Uh, Jack Welsh, former chairman and CEO of GE, um, spoke to a group of MBA candidates. And uh, he said he never hires from his gut. He never makes hiring decisions from his gut using first impressions and subjective opinions because, in his words, they're unreliable predictors of success. Uh, instead, he says uh, that he prefers to look for evidence of a candidate's fit. And uh, I have to pass this over to you, but what that raises for me is, yes, uh, that makes sense. But if I were a business owner or a head of sales, I'd say, great. What evidence and fit to what? <laughs> How do I make this happen? Yeah, that's the big question there, the how. And, you know, I think people can hear him make that comment and shoot off into a reality that they think is datatized. But oftentimes, sadly, it's not any real sense of data. It's still personality driven. Uh, As we see so much of the market replete with personality tests, and we know that those break down at some level. We know that those are still filled with the things that you can do to defend the ego from a real moment of truth and clarity for how the candidate is presenting and how they are also being perceived. You know, that's a two-way street where lots of signals can get crossed. So how do you separate the noise from the signal there? And it's going to be the least sexy thing you could say. As I say it, people are going to be like, wait, I don't want to listen to an episode on this because here it is, job descriptions, Uh, job descriptions. And what happens for a lot of people is they're interacting with a job description in such a way that oftentimes it's a copy and paste job from some other HR resource or a giant impossible wish list of this person that we conceive of that's going to, you know, help us reach our goals and balance out all the gaps in our team. And when we get into that fantasy wishful thinking, uh, we are set up for some serious pain and failure. Right. Well, it's interesting. If we, if we step back and, and think about 
why the hell did we go to job descriptions and and uh, why is it sexy and not uh, something boring and kind of um, uh, nondescript? You know, what's interesting to me is going back to Jack's comments, or at least the comments that were attributed to him, you know, looking for evidence of a candidate's fit. So if you think about a job description, the job description should be the absolute, um, the absolute rule. It should be the absolute last, um, last statement uh, in terms of defining fit, right? It, it's the first thing that a candidate reads. It's how they prepare for their interviews. And it should be essentially how everybody that interviews a candidate prepares for the interview. And it should be the measuring stick against which those conversations uh, are judged. Uh, so that makes sense to me. I think the other thing you talked about is this idea of evidence, uh, signals, and you pointed right to uh, personality assessments. Um, because we know that a lot of folks, especially in sales, uh, use personality assessments because they believe that a salesperson, a successful salesperson, has a uh, su- has a personality that's going to be an indicator of success. Hmm. Um, and I wonder, what's your experience, Chris? We we know that that's not true um, statistically, though we know much like the feeling that gut is uh, a useful way to judge a candidate. We also know that personality is about as effective as gut. But why, in your experience, Chris, doesn't personality work? Well, two reasons. One, without awareness, you'll often hire for what is a mirror of what you want to see in the way they show up in the fit and function of the role. And so, you know, if you're a visionary, you tend to resonate more with visionary. If you're an operator, you tend to more resonate with operator. So, so that's a little more uh, understood, I think. But what's missed by a lot of people is the next layer of that, that if you're just looking at personality, what you're doing is interacting with what is the surface level of who that person is. And that surface level is shaped by so many factors. We know that most of the personality is what is – it's preverbal. By four or five, your personality is formed by the experiences you're going through. And it's, it's a rate-limiting factor to the impact of somebody's leadership. People are dynamic and they can change, although most people don't. And so what happens when you're looking at that person through the lens of personality is you're, you're thinking about them in terms of really shoddy science. Are they extroverted or introverted? Well, you could have a, a malformed bias that, you know, this certain sales role has to have somebody extroverted. When I know you're domain and expertise you've seen over and over that's not the case you also can uh, without the awareness of this get trapped in ways of measuring people that just aren't the best ways to think about who they are so more and more personality tests are being debunked i mean you've got like three of the top five studies in psychology in the last 30 years uh coming to we're finding out that there were gaps in them there were there were falsified pieces of information so a lot of what these have been based on aren't even things that are helpful in actually being able to measure the two dynamics you want to measure the fit and function and then who they really are as a person and personality is just so much of a cloud to all that and if that sounds like a reach 
we'll go back to something that we've said before, uh, you know, the adult development specialist, Robert Keegan, on his book, In Everyone Culture, where he said most people are doing a job that no one is paying for the, them for, hiding inadequacies, hiding the politics, hiding the vulnerabilities, hiding the weaknesses. And personality is a mirror that we hide behind. And so if you're only looking through the lens of personality, then you're looking back for that reflection. And so you get an extroverted leader who's, uh, who, who tends to be extemporaneous in their thinking, who shoots off the cuff, and then they're turned off by somebody who's reserved and critical and has more questions, when in actuality, that's exactly what they need on the team. I'm not talking about critical in the way of you know, somebody that's negative and an energy drain, but I, you know, we, we see this fallacy all the time. Yeah, and uh, that's really well said. Great evidence there. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we run into all the time on the sales side are leaders who swear by personality assessments, DISC especially. And, you know, what we, what we try to communicate is that, in fact, when personality assessments do work, uh, or at least seem to work, um, all they're doing, they're not really predicting someone's success. They are coming along with a bunch of other evidence that the uh, hiring manager is ignoring or not paying as much attention to. So there's something else that we're doing that's uh, elevating a candidate to an interview status other than personality that matters and you know to our to our success. Yeah. And so it's really not the personality that's driving the successful decision. It's something else that you're missing that uh, is part of your process or your habits that put you in front of those types of people. Um, I'd say the other thing, though, too, Chris, is we have a lot of people that look at salespeople and, so, and, and think that they have a personality that either that they have to have a personality that either won't work inside their business or that they couldn't stand to be around all day, right? So to your point about we hire people that are like us, there are a lot of folks in technology, um, design, um, marketing, uh, areas where creativity, uh, consulting, uh, where uh, we have thoughtful folks and a very thoughtful sales process, and they look at the prototypical or stereotypical um, personality of a salesperson say, shit, I don't want them in my culture. I don't want them in my company. I don't want them dealing with my customers. And they decide uh, in advance that salespeople, traditional salespeople won't work in their business. Yeah. It, it, this is uh, such a huge point. Uh, and Nicholas Talib talks about this. He talks about this idea that, um, you know, he's written the black swan, uh, really predicted the credit crisis 2007 and 8 in print before anybody else uh, or one of the few voices that did skin in the game anti-fragile some really great big idea thinking that gets you out of the muck of so much of confusion and deception and he talks about this idea that like if you had to choose and you you I'm going to butcher this because I'm doing it from memory but you had two surgeons one looks really clean tight buttoned up one looks like he's a butcher <laughs> And, and big hands and, you know, didn't. we naturally go to the one that looks a certain way. But statistically speaking, the one that doesn't have to play the role is usually the one that's better. Um, it's a really, really powerful concept. And 
because we judge so much by appearance. So you can walk into a room and you're working with a creative team and the person that looks the most creative very oftentimes isn't the most creative. And the person that's the most buttoned up could actually be the one that's most creative. Same thing with sales. You know, the person that strikes us as a little bit of an asshole, maybe as we get to know who they are and what they're about, they're very caring and they're very focused and they can deliver in an amazing way, while the person that's very charming is actually the person that's very dangerous. Um, and this is the thing that is is so powerful when you get beyond all of the misjudgments, the bias on your part or on their part, any smoke and mirrors. Yeah, there's a way through. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting too, to me, Chris, when we get into this idea of job descriptions, is is the is the the default with ninety percent of the hiring managers out there to basically phone in the work involved in creating the job description, mm. and and you know I don't want to again this is not to lay shame or to be overly critical. But it doesn't matter if you're the hiring manager in a sales role or if you're the HR person who is supporting that hiring manager. Across the board, we tend to, leaders tend to, even experts who um, have skills in the, in the context of a recruiting effort, phone in that part of the job um, of, of having a, bringing on a successful recruit. And in fact, I really believe it's because, yes, we're busy and everything else, but I think it's because, Chris, I'd love to hear your perspective, they have no idea. They have er no earthly idea what constitutes a definition of a candidate that is more likely to succeed than one who is not. So if you, if you have no idea, then the job description appears to be a waste of time and doesn't appear to be helpful. If you have no idea then you have no evidence to look for. And so why not use gut and why not use personality because they just happen to be there, they're easy to grab. And at the end of the day, you can convince yourself, nobody really knows what makes somebody successful. So let's just take a swing of the bat and see what happens. Yeah. You know, at best, at best, they are feeling insecure and they don't really know how to tackle it. And so they phone it in a little bit. They wing it some, a little copy-paste. You know, we'll, we'll evolve our way into a very precise and accurate job description right. so that this work, which doesn't happen. When in anything do you evolve into clarity, right? It takes work. It takes focus. It takes iterations. At, at best, that's that. At worst, at worst, they're jumping. They view it as jumping through a useless hoop not appreciating how powerful it is to give someone a way to excel and to measure that and to support it. I mean, so you're seeing this right now. You know, how many reports have you and I seen over the last even few weeks as all the big, uh, you know, groups and agencies and organizations and associations start to put out their end of year reports and, and where things are headed next year. And over and over, and one of the big themes is people are leaving because they don't feel valued. And what you think, what the manager <laughs> thinks is value versus right. what the candidate or person in the role thinks is being valued are two different things. Because it's not 
as much about money. It's a little bit, but it's more about you care about me. You know what it takes to do my job and you are setting me up for success. Right. And, and the best way to do that is a tight, quantifiable, measurable job description. Because that should be the definition of success. Exactly. It's not heroics like we talked about previous episode. Instead, it is grounded in reality. And so, you know, we talk about this phrase, being in your lane. I mean, it is so awesome to know what your lane is, to know how to show up and do it at a high quality level, and that someone above you knows the challenges you face, knows how you're delivering, and resources the future of your ever-increasing impact. Right, right. I love it when you say define the lane or, and, and be in the lane. One of the uh, one of the uh, phrases I use to describe the importance of you know a well-designed hiring process is that slow starts lead to fast exits. Mm. I really never connected it to your lane uh, analogy, but you know, in sales especially, um, you know, the, statistically over all um, roles. Um, about a third of new hires begin looking for work within, they start investigating new jobs within their first six months in the job. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, especially in sales, you know, we can prevent that if we don't simply hand a new hire a phone and a desk and wish them good luck, right? Go get him, Tiger. <laughs> we actually have a job description that that identifies those predictive components of success and then we can onboard them and ramp them up and uh, you know in a way that accelerates their success in a, in a proactive way so they do feel to your point valued and they do feel like they made the right decision and this then creates a higher level of drive uh, we actually I actually heard someone mention this on another podcast that I'm not going to remember their name off the top, but there's a, uh, you may have read some information about this, Chris, you seem to be very versed in the topic and you have a great recall of authors that you've read. Uh, this guy was talking about a body of work that um, is starting to uh, find evidence for this idea of fit equals grit. So the higher the fit, the more grit somebody brings to the role, the more I guess another word could be motivated yeah. or driven they are to, to be successful in that role. That's awesome. I mean, it makes complete sense. Like I know where I'm at. I know what it takes to do the job. I'm not there yet, but I have this end in sight and I know how to get there. Um, and you know, there is uh, some work done around talent that amplified this 10,000 hours idea. People can't get somewhere they can't visualize. Like most people, can't, you know, uh, imagine it on their own. Most people, and this isn't denigrating anybody or less than or more than, it's just human brains. Most people need a very clear defined picture. This is what it looks like to excel. And this is how you can get there. And that's where you're going to see that grit show up. And so what's happening in so many roles, role design, role function, the job description, you know, is we're setting people up to fail without this very clear HD, 4K, whatever you want to call it, picture that is so powerful. And when people have that picture, they are then motivated to get 
to that. When it fits with who they are and what's going on, when it fits with how they're wired up, uh, when it fits with what is going to help them show up and be at their best. Mm, mm, yeah, love that. So let's, uh, we built a case for, for job descriptions. We've talked about our experiences with folks who uh, resist uh, the job description. And what's really fun is actually walking through a job description with somebody and actually helping them think about uh, or and identify the points that we're going to talk about. But let's just jump into what that job description should include. And I think probably before we do that, Chris, we should probably make a designation between what we think of as a role definition and what most people think of as a job description. Perfect. Yeah. And you define that better than anybody else. So I'm, I don't want to chicken out on this, but you're the best. And so you, you lay it down for us. Well, so this idea of a role definition really should be looking at the DNA or the operational DNA required by that role. So what we really want to do is think about the role as a piece of or a part of the strategic plan for the organization. So if you just think of a hierarchical approach to uh, eventually making a hiring decision, you want to think about the strategy or the of the organization. So the operating strategy that you want to employ, the structure, the operating structure now for how you're going to organize the organization. Um, and then, of course, you want to be thinking about roles required to deliver on that structure. So, you know, think of a sports team, right? You've got a strategy for winning, uh, let's say, football, the Super Bowl, and you've got a structure for the team that has to be put in place. So how that team should be structured, both on the field and the back office. And then you've got a basic number of roles that you have to fill. The most obvious to us as fans are those roles that are played on the field. But what's really interesting is what differentiates one team from the next is oftentimes is how those roles are defined and how unique um, and creative we are in the context of the people and the, the skills, the uh, competencies, the drive, the experiences, the knowledge that we use to um, evaluate folks to fit in certain roles. And we know that uh, the most successful coaches in, in football, for example, look at roles and look at the potential of those roles and the people playing those roles much differently than the least successful in, of their peers. So when we think about role definition, we want to be thinking about what elements are most predictive of success in that role? What is the proper way to build a role? And there is actually science behind it. And, uh, and then think about, think very clearly about what the evidence of past performances, what the evidence um, of uh, folks that have failed perhaps in that role tells you about what's required and, and approach this in a very scientific way, in a very thoughtful way. And then from that role definition, we can then create the forward-facing um, job description, which is oftentimes used um, to advertise or to promote an opening. Yeah. So role definition, job description being different, role definition, them being in their lane, job description, what's putting that call out to others to come into engaging the potential to be in this role. And this is where people, you know, okay, any any data 
if you care about data, I want you to lean in right now because it's going to be hard to hear. I do not want to tell you. I wish I could show you. I just want to paint a picture. What's it look like to be on a browser and to see someone take either a person's datatized measurement or the benchmark of what we want to see in this role? So the, or the, so the outward-facing job description, the benchmark, or the internal role description, we already have this person. Either one of those, to go through and see it be built, like piece by piece by piece, is like magical. It, you see the data being translated into these parts and pieces where you're literally selecting things and voila you go through this process boom yeah and then either the descriptions printed out or the yeah. definition yeah it's re- and it's really cool using the tool you're talking about the the uh, position success indicator uh, we can either go in and build it from scratch uh, based on the six key categories that universally are used to develop these role definitions so there's scope of role the work required tasks functions skills required, uh, and then uh, the flexibility or the, the degree of flexibility or structure built into the role itself. Uh, those six components, we can either build them from scratch or what's pretty wild is we can we can <clears throat> look at your top performers. So if you don't really know why somebody is successful in a role, but you love them and you want to replicate them, we don't have to just think about their personality. We can actually look at what they do every day, how they approach their role. We can actually look at their performance DNA and create the operational DNA of the role based on these six key categories. So we can either build it from scratch or we can identify it by looking at a number of your top performers and then and then replicating the, their internal DNA and, and creating that role definition from that. So that so the so the path to getting there isn't very difficult. In fact, it's very fairly straightforward. The challenge for most folks is to take this, take the science behind this, the data tie science behind this, and then transform that into a job description. You know that tool that you're now going to use to advertise or promote um, the opening. The tool you're going to use now to um, evaluate candidates as they come in to be screened and, and walk through the interview process. And then that ends up also becoming the tool by which you use to, um, or through which you create the goal definitions and performance metrics that you're gonna evaluate that person by. Yeah, and then it's a challenge for leadership to stay disciplined to the execution of that. Right. You know, to, to resource it, to hold them accountable to it, to encourage them to it. Rather than, rather than being distracted, uh, adding more, this goes back to that heroic thing that's so destructive that we talked about last episode, you know, the, the goal here, I mean, to connect with somebody in the hallway on the team that is able to articulate in, in such tight, brief clarity, this is what I do. This is how I contribute to the overall vision and goal. And this is the specific lane that I am in. And I am marching towards this metric. 
I'm marching towards this improvement, whatever. And it's, it's on the leader and the leadership if the people they're leading can't do that. Right, right. And, and oftentimes it really just takes, again, based on our experience, it really just takes a third party who knows what the objective is to simply ask folks the right questions. Um, and when we think about asking the right questions in the context of a job description, we think of four key categories. So if anybody listening has a job description they want to compare uh, or look at, we can, we, I can walk you through this pretty quickly. Um, for most job descriptions, you're definitely going to have a element, and I'm going to go from least important to most important, but this idea of qualifications. So we're going to have a level of qualifications that everybody must meet to hit the role. The biggest mistakes that we make here, or that hiring managers make here, is that they include qualifications that don't really matter. And Chris, I think this gets back to your point about we hire people that are like us. Uh, one of the one of the most interesting qualifications that I think is really important, um, for example, like uh, we we don't really include this often in sales roles, but I saw this in a sales. Uh, definition once must have a driver's license <laughs> right and have your own car now this was obviously for a for a rural area it was there was a lot of territory to cover but that was a great qualification uh and obviously they felt like they had to have that but that that's something that's very predictive of success right mm-hmm. uh very important whether you put that on the advertise on the advertisement or not is another question but it really it, for them it was a filter that they couldn't do without a qualification that oftentimes isn't as important must have a college degree, mm-hmm. right? So are we doing that because we know, in fact, that in order to sell our stuff, you must have a level of education that certifies you or credentializes you for the role? Or are we doing that because we just have a feeling that this is what our culture requires? Or because we have a feeling that I wouldn't want to buy from somebody that didn't have a college degree. Or do we feel like college degree um, stipulates some level of wisdom that we can? We now don't have to um, interview for? We can just assume they have it. Yeah. I, I'm tracking with everything you're saying. I also have a little weird theory on this that I wonder if I could say out loud. But if I say it out loud, uh, I, you know, well, maybe I should... I want to hear what you think about it. Um, so before I say this theory, I think it's important to know that, that I mean, you're very educated. You have a graduate degree. Uh, I'm educated. I, in the field I was in, I have a doctorate degree. So we both value education. Now, here's the thing. I've worked with enough founders where some of them aren't college educated. They didn't finish. But they want to make sure the people they hire are college educated. Why would that be there? I think it's for a lot of the reasons you're saying, but I think sometimes, and it's this isn't operating at conscious reality, but a lot of times if you're willing to go through, to go to college, you're willing to jump through hoops and play a game and fit in with society and believe a lot of conventional things. And sometimes employers are wanting to hire people who are willing to be conventionally bound to mm-hmm. certain mm-hmm. pathways. And then they wonder why there's not a lot of creativity and innovation. Mic drop. I don't know. What I do you think it. about that? Is that crazy? Uh, no, I love it because the con- because I, I see that the opposite is true. You know, I see that 
a lot of people that don't have college degrees are among the hardest workers, the most ambitious and most yeah. creative because they have to do more with less, right? Or Rich. the perception of having less. Yeah, totally. I know it's kind of a dated resource now and he's kind of gone a little crazy lately, but the rich dad, poor dad stuff, right? Where it mm-hmm. compared the educated versus the the street educated. Right, right. I had a coach tell me when I was 25, almost 20 years ago, you'll appreciate this. He was like, Chris, book smarts don't win. Street smarts do. And, I, you know, he was trying to help in me this out of balance where it was all about having the most knowledge, book smarts, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, again, in the sales context, if if you have a scripted sale and it's more like a call center where you don't want people to be thinking on their feet, you'll you'll qualify somebody for a certain for a certain skill set. But if it's a it's if it's a traditional belly to belly role that where you have to think on your feet and you have to be responsive and and focus on the customer, yeah, you've got to be able to be sharp and be thoughtful. So out of these four qualifications interesting. Think about those qualifications and if they're really important. The next most important thing we think about are responsibilities. It's really interesting that uh, most hiring managers don't think about what they're going to hold a candidate responsible for day in, day out. Now, we can just say generally a salesperson is responsible for uh, prospecting. Okay, great. But to what degree and using what types of tools? Uh, that we can say that they're going to be responsible for um, activating or leading a sales process. Okay, great, but what kind of sales process? Is it consultative? Is it value-based? Is it transactional? Is it solution-centric? Is it strategic? Is it, you know, um, is it more of a collaborative or relationship-based methodology? So, again, we have to be thoughtful about, about that because there are not every salesperson is going to be great in every sales process. Not every salesperson is going to be comfortable or be able to excel in every, with every methodology. So truly understanding the responsibilities that will be most predictive of success in this role. And by the way, responsibilities and qualifications, they should be maybe four or six. I'm not talking about 20. We're talking about four or six really important, highly predictive responsibilities that you can fit into one line on a job description. And, and, you know, you think about the way that people are overwhelmed right now with trying to do more and more and more. Their day got lengthened in work from home, and guess what? They work more. Because how long does something take? Very often the time you give it. And so when you, you expand all of these heroic approaches like that, and they're not precise and accurate, they're sloppy, what have you yeah. done? You've right. You've worked against the very thing that helps leaders excel, which is elimination and focus and concentration. They're spread too thin. They're dispersed. So then they start winging it in the places they're good because they're good enough to wing it there and feeling crappy in the places they're bad. Right, 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 right. And I think, uh, Chris, the next most important thing you're probably going to agree with uh, to a great degree, just because of your focus on what's happening today with this great migration, right, of, of people leaving, right, the great resignation. Mm. Um, the next most important thing is compensation. Uh, we always include compensation and on-target earnings when we hire salespeople. 
um, in our in our job descriptions and advertisements. It is an important qualifier because we want people who um, understand what uh, you know what the role pays. We don't want people to to join us or to join the process who are overqualified, and we don't want people who are underqualified. But the other most important part of this is that we want people to who are a good fit for us to recognize how much they're going to be valued. And this gets back to the point I think you made earlier when we kicked off this idea of do people feel valued? Mm. One one way to make people feel, feel valued is to pay them a competitive salary. Uh, I just read, read a statistic today that 43% of people would leave their companies for just a 10% increase in, in salary elsewhere. Does that make any sense for salespeople? It really doesn't. But what's really wild about that number is it's almost twice what it was previously. So we are, as employees, uh, you know, are becoming more and more focused on the things that matter to them outside of salary, right? 10% is nothing, especially in sales. I should be able to give myself a 10% raise just by working harder and smarter, right? Being a little bit more efficient and effective in my role. Mm. But the idea that they would leave for so, for so little tells us something about how they feel when they're at work, how undervalued they are viewed, perhaps how they're viewed like um, somebody who's just coin-operated, perhaps? Dude, I just bought the URL just now, you're only worth 10%more.com. <laughs> And I'm going to do a campaign on it because like, yeah, especially in sales, sales leadership, sales professionals, that that should be offensive, you know, not in a way that it creates bitterness or causes you to lose the mindset edge that you need to be at your best. But it's like, you know, I I don't, we're talking to people who multiply value, right? right? Your, your passion with the term growth multiplier and a growth multiplier who has a servant leader mindset on sales, 10% laughable. That's And, right. and think about this. If inflation's up 7.9%, what do you got? A 2.1% raise? Right, right. Yuck. Right. I have to go yeah. clean off now. Yeah, well, it's, it's really <laughs> interesting, too. In a lot of organizations, especially growth companies, the kind of companies that we work with, that you work with, um, Growth companies tend to be so focused on systems and products and processes that they undervalue people. They feel like what they're building is something amazing. It's it's something to behold, and that anyone who's worth their salt would be would feel lucky to be working with them. And they actually treat people that way, right? For the longest time in Silicon Valley and and points around the country that. Uh, thought of themselves as hotspots for venture capital and and uh, venture backed startups, you know you could not get a leader's attention if you felt like you deserved more money until you quit, mm-hmm. and then they would come back to you and and make that counter offer. And today, especially given how hard it is to find great people, we are seeing that happen more and more. Yeah. Great people are being ignored; they're being undervalued, and they're only being paid attention to when they go out and find another job commit, get the offer letter, and then send in their resignation letter. And then the negotiation begins. Then the conversation about value begins. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. And, and you know, by that time, you've already lost some people. If the person is secure in who they are and really likes the mission and they view it 
with some gamesmanship. Maybe they won't be uh, offended, and they can they can play the game in a fun way and, and advance their income. But for most people, most people, by the time you try to match that offer that they go they got somewhere else, it's they're feeling devalued to the point that right. that relationship isn't rescue rescuable right. at this point. Right, and not rescuable because how valued do they feel if they have to go to those lengths to have you listen to them? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, the, the and I, I have lots of numbers around this, but I am reminded of research done by the American Psychology Association. Uh, they talk about the fact that 93% of employees who feel valued say they're motivated to do their best at work, right? Three times the number of folks who don't feel valued. Yeah. So, What's interesting about that, right, is is we know that when you feel valued, you're going to you're going to do your best at work. Well, why would I go out of my way to retain somebody who didn't feel valued if the only promise to change that I'm making is to pay you more? Wouldn't I just retain an an unmotivated person? Mm. <laughs> Wouldn't they just cost me more money? So again, from a leadership perspective, what choice do you have to make? Do you want to continue to treat people like dog shit or <laughs> continue to undervalue them or not communicate how much you valued them and then play this kind of game? Or do you want to just you know, look at the culture you're building, take a hard look at it, take a hard look at yourself and think about what changes you can make? Yeah. This is hitting me in the eyes because you know I had an issue with my kids and getting together and talking about wanting to raise their allowance and they started communicating with each other. So I just said, fine, fired them, brought in some people from Craigslist and now they don't get their, no, (laughs) (laughs) you would never do that to your kids. Why not? Why not? And I know family (laughs) is an overused term so oftentimes for dysfunctional work cultures where they can pressure too much, but like, you know, care for the people, take care of them, value them. Give them a clear, strong lane to run in. And let's watch the results happen. That's what we get to see with people we work with, isn't it? Right, right. All right, man, we're coming to an end. I, I want to wrap up for our listeners, but I don't want to skip over any important stuff. Um, the fourth one and the most important for me, and we see this in the results that we're able to achieve for our clients, when we're thinking about the job description, the most important, and this is what we start with. This is... This could be the first third to half of the entire job description is identifying the must-haves for the role. So when we use a job description as an advertising vehicle or a promotional vehicle and we're using Indeed or some other platform uh, or it's on our website, we want candidates to read immediately one quick sentence about or two sentences about the role that we're talking about, mm. and then a bunch of detail about what the candidate must bring to the table. Mm. Do you know the must-haves required to be successful in this role? And can, can you articulate them in a way that are e- easy to read, easy to consume, and easy for someone to qualify themselves in or out? Mm. And you use words that have certain terms like must include, must um must be able to, you know, we want to know exactly what what success looks like. We want to communicate exactly what success looks like in no uncertain terms. And I'll tell you something, Chris, 
the more qualified somebody is for that role, the more excited they're going to be. And for any hiring manager who feels overwhelmed with the quantity of resumes that they're, and applications that they have to sift through, this is the perfect way to make sure that you can to make sure that you value your time um, and and uh, reduce the number of wasted uh, resumes and applications that you have to go through to get to the one that you really want. No more waste. No more losing people. No more wasting time. No more exhaustion. No more devaluing. No, no more setting people up to fail. You know, it, it can be a different day. And, you know, I know our hope is that the circumstance that the employment marketplace finds itself in where you're, you're having to move fast for talent, that you can do this in a way that gets beyond the gut into data, and then you can replicate it over and over and over again. Right. So back to Jack Welsh, evidence of fit. Evidence is data. Evidence is predictive. Um, and every employee, if they are worth their salt, they're going to ask you for the evidence. They're going to ask you, who are the most successful people in the role? How can I replicate their success? They're going to look for that evidence. And the easier you make it for them, the faster the, faster the hiring process goes, the faster they um, move through the process of learning the role, and the faster they get to success. Right on, right on. I appreciate it, Chris. Super Have fun. a good one. You too, buddy. Thanks for listening. If you've learned something or were inspired to try something new, please rate the podcast and share this episode with someone you know. If you'd like to learn more, visit and connect with me, James, at floristgroup.com, F-L-O-R-I-S-S group.com. And if you want to connect with me, Chris, check out SightShift, S-I-G-H-T, shift.com. Peace. Peace.